Greetings and salutations. My name is Tyler Ellenick, and this is Raven's Rule, the podcast that chronicles all things 90s can rock. In this episode, I speak with James McLean, who booked and managed many bands in the 90s, including Doughboys, Scratching Posts, Maid, Eric's Trip, Sloan, and more. I hope you dig our chat. So, um, you're the first person I've had on the podcast who um, was in Quebec, or specifically Montreal, in the in the 90s. Can you maybe um, set the scene for the people who weren't that far out east? What was uh, what was happening in Montreal, uh, you know, Canadian music-wise? Um, the early 90s in Montreal was really uh, not on anybody's radar quite yet. It had had a good run in the late 80s with Men Without Hats and uh, Mitsu and stuff like that, but wasn't really well known for what was about to come for me, obviously my whole foray back to Montreal uh, in 1990 was to go work for the Doughboys and they, you know, had already been touring the States, didn't really focus on Montreal themselves. They were really out there working band going to Europe on a shoestring budget, just making stuff happen on their own. And they set an example for some of the other bands in Montreal that were starting to uh, think about, getting out and touring. Obviously, there was the Nils, there was Voivod, there was Three O'Clock Train. Um, there was a community of Anglophone bands that uh, I was lucky enough to see firsthand um, almost daily for some of them because um, John Kassler and I from the Doughboys had rented uh, an old recording studio right downtown Montreal on St. Antoine Street, which is right across the street from where the Bell Center is now. Um, it was uh, Michel Pagliaro's recording studio, and he couldn't afford to keep it up as an actual working studio anymore, and the lease was up. So he uh, bailed on it, and John called me one day. I was living in London, Ontario at the time, and he said, you got to come here like tomorrow. we got to get this place. I went, why? He goes, just come. <laughs> so I drove overnight, and I met him in the morning, and we met – uh, the owner of this building, and we walked through it, and, and the space was just absolutely fabulous. Um, so I literally picked up and moved to Montreal in, in April of 1990, and we had uh, this – we turned it into a, a rehearsal studio, and next thing you know, we had all these great bands rehearsing there all the time, and my offices were the old uh, studio office uh, in the back, and um, – it was fascinating just hearing and seeing the bands uh, form their songs, put it together, and then you know hear about their exploits when they came back from tour. And um, it was sort of a central hub. And then I started going to these impromptu loft parties where bands would be playing, and just you know the Fafoon Electric was down the street almost, and we just had a great community of acts coming through that were starting. You know, bands always liked playing Montreal. It was exotic for American bands. It was exotic for even bands from Toronto who had never seen, uh, you know, Toronto was so different from Montreal. So I think what I liked the most about it was it was a under-the-radar community where artists could survive on a shoestring because rents were cheap up on the plateau and the McGill area. And uh, there was plenty of little bars to play. Then, of course, there, were the, there was the Spectrum and the Fafoon and uh, a few other great places, a place called La Brick that was around for about a year that was an 800-capacity room and saw some terrific shows there. So it was um, 
a great incubator, I can say, uh, whereas Toronto didn't feel that way to me. Toronto felt like every gig was going to be highly uh, criticized and judged, and you just couldn't really organically get away from whatever the commercial thinking of how music is supposed to be. So I, I always felt the difference between the Montreal and Toronto scene was the Montreal bands didn't think about so much what could they do to become commercial. It was like, this is what we do, and we're just going to take it out there. Um, that may be unfair to the Toronto acts because I know a lot of great Toronto acts that were just you know doing unique music and, and trying to you know set their mark, but it just felt that there was too much – of a spotlight, too much industry in Toronto, whereas Montreal, the industry had bailed in the late 70s with Bill 101 when about 300,000 uh, Anglophones moved out of uh, Quebec because of the Parti Québécois and uh, populated Toronto. So you mentioned being friends with John Castor and managing the Doughboys. The Doughboys are a signature band for a lot of people. It's one of their favorites of the 90s and of all time for Canadian music. Can you maybe take us inside the Doughboys and the kind of progression of their career, the kind of ups and downs and, you know, the kind of opportunities that were good and the kind of missed opportunities, anything like that, and any kind of insight into what it was like for that band? Well, it was a lot of fun for most of the time. They had already established themselves as a great independent touring act. They were on a label called Restless Records. And when I came on board as manager, my first job was to get them out of that deal and find a better scenario for them. What was uh, what was wrong with the original deal that they weren't happy with? The label was a U.S.-based label that um, was going through mergers and whatnot, and they they had signed a lot of acts, and um, they just didn't really have much of a marketing budget, and uh, there were a lot of bands at that time getting looked at by bigger labels, and this was pre-Nirvana, but you could feel it in the air that labels were finally getting, you know, on board with developing talent rather than just always going for the most mainstream pet rock they could sign and make it the next, you know, marketing sensation. So with the Doughboys, it was an act that, I mean, every show was just just they gave it their all and it was always packed and sweaty and they just they just had a, a spark that a lot of acts lacked and uh, drive and what happened was i had been talking to a label in toronto and simultaneously the us mothership of that label and they both seemed interested almost at the same time, so we were able to sign what was then, I think, pretty unique. It was a joint venture deal, and we were able to take the advance money and buy out our Restless contract and record their first major label record called Crush. And, um, you know, this band already had a touring base pretty much uh, all over Europe and the UK and whatnot, and they were able to get on tours with cool bands and get out on packages and play festivals. You know, it was exciting. It really was. Watching this band go from a hardworking independent act, all of a sudden now being given a substantial amount of money to make videos, uh, you know, tour support to offset tour losses so we could go out and afford to support larger acts that weren't giving us what we were 
getting as a headliner, but we knew that we would play to a bigger audience and it would be uh, hopefully pay off down the road. So, you know, the band itself was, um, you know, learning how to adapt to now going from, yeah, just make your record, send it to us, we'll put it out to having every move, note, demo analyzed by people in L.A. and Toronto. And uh, it sort of took its toll. It kind of changed the dynamics, but we were able to bring in good producers and sort of help them tune out the noise and just make the best possible records they could. Unfortunately, by the time they had really hit their stride, they had some member changes and the scenery started to change a bit. And obviously, you know, Napster had started and, you know, record sales were starting to struggle for them and a lot of acts uh, if you didn't have a, a smash radio single. And the Doughboys were never and never aspired to be, you know, a super commercial act. They were out there touring with, like, you know, the Descendants and Ned's Atomic Dustbin. But they were part of the whole, I think, they were pre-grunge, but they may have been lumped into it for a while in the alternative rock scene. You know, much was supportive, but, you know, I can say that, you know, when you asked, uh, I think, about missed opportunities, the fact that the band wanted to work all the time meant we weren't always available to be at key sort of industry events, and we didn't really mm. pay much attention. So when they won the Casby for Best Single of the Year, they weren't there to receive it. <laughs> when they were nominated for, for um, a Juno, they were on tour. So we just never – it was like, oh, that's nice, but we're, we're in Europe now or we're in the States or we're, we're touring with Red Cross and we're, we're out with um, you know this or that act that they uh, – admired and respected so they were lucky to tour with some really great acts and they um you know for i had to support that and you know it was hard telling the labels no they're not available no they're not they weren't available for many of these conferences uh be it a label uh, having their own just you know getting all the distributors and everybody together for whatever their industry uh, functions were to the larger public uh, um, festivals and, and, and whatnot. But, you know, I think it was better that they played Reading Festival in 92 than, you know, going to the Casby's. I think that's where we were. Wow. When, when they, <laughs> so, you know, well, they had some great experiences. So we got to see Jonathan Cummins, the guitar player, uh, have an argument with PJ Harvey backstage in, in, in Reading. <laughs> We'll break that. We'll stop right there. Break that. Break that story down a little bit. That's a good one. Uh, Jonathan was always um, up for um, some verbal shenanigans with anybody he met. He was very uh, personable and funny, and so he get he could strike up a conversation with anybody. And he, um, he him and PJ had a, a good uh, debate over something that lasted a while. It had us all in stitches. <laughs> um, you know, he was just able to do that. You mentioned them not being at certain like industry type events. Is that the kind of thing that holds a band like the Doughboys back a little bit from like say not reaching like an Our Lady Peace or an I Mother Earth or Moist or getting on a Big Shiny Tunes or that kind of push that you know catapults a band to playing arena as opposed to the club scene? I mean, there is some truth to it. Some acts just have I don't know what it, I, it is, but some acts have a story that the media gravitate towards um, than just a, a working band that just wants to play all the time. Some acts just just are more 
I don't know what to say. It wasn't that the Doughboys weren't camera friendly with all their hair and their looks. They were a good looking act. They had, they were, um, I think, falsely perceived as a slight, slightly aloof. It was only so much that I think that you know a, a good example is one time a big rock radio station in Toronto uh, before a show we played in Toronto did a phoner and this DJ clearly hadn't done any research about the band and once one of the fellows uh, in the band basically I don't he didn't tank the interview but he basically didn't give this guy much uh he didn't he kind of played with them and it was quite funny at the time I'm um, but at the end of the day you know like a lot of bands who take their art very and craft very serious they just didn't suffer fools uh, very much and they they just didn't have time for some of those people who were just putting in the in the hours, and uh, that's it. They were very very passionate and devoted and dedicated. And I'd never seen a work ethic like Kastner and the band had. You know, um, you know Paul Newman, John Jonathan Cummins, uh, John Kastner, and uh, revolving door bass players from Peter Arsenault to uh, anyway. The long and short of it is, I feel that some bands do better at going after. What would you call the soundbite opportunities? Hmm. Um, you know, always got to play live on much, and they did those kind of things too. But it was it wasn't a priority. So I think the label, at, perhaps at times, was frustrated due to our lack of uh, uh, availability and felt that we should have spent more time in Canada. But Canada wasn't our priority, and and nor was it our main source of income. You know, once you start touring globally, you start to see actually how small Canada's music economy is. Not that the acts aren't proud to be from Canada and love Canada. It's just a much smaller market in a global scale. So, um, you know, and I think there was one big mistake we made. We all at the time couldn't pass up the opportunity and the label thought it was a good idea. And everybody thought, well, it'd be fun, get a free trip to Jamaica. <laughs> so we, we went and played a much music thing, spring, March break, whatever. Uh, I think it was called Jamming in Jamaica. And, well, we show up for sound check after being in some resort for a few days and literally the PA was all bass bins and we were facing the ocean on a beach with just a platform on the, over the sand. <laughs> so needless to say, it was, wow, how are we going to pull this off? It's going to be on camera. It's going to be broadcast across Canada and there was going to be thousands of these spring break kids there. So we literally called um, a guy, Phil Burnett in New York, uh, an engineer who had worked on the Bad Brains records and whatnot uh, that we knew through Daniel Ray, one of our producers or whoever, I can't remember. But I literally called Phil from that sound check and said, can you get on a plane tonight and come to Jamaica? <laughs> we need you to build a PA and mix this show for us because this is ridiculous. Oh, wow. And he did. And he showed up the next day and we ordered some gear that had to come from Kingston, Jamaica to Montego Bay. It's not that far geographically, but it is when the roads are what they are in Jamaica. So everything was like literally at the last minute we pulled off. Uh, he had to rewire everything to find some horns and mids. And, um, but it still sounded like ass because we were playing to the ocean. There was nothing to – the sound just went and it evaporated. And the kids were sitting in lawn chairs. And uh, anyway, if you ever get a chance to see the footage, at the very end, uh, Jonathan decides to break one of his most treasured guitars just out of sheer frustration oh, wow. because it just seemed we were put in this sort of 
situation that just sort of didn't sit right, but it was like, oh, well, I guess we'll play ball this on this. So, you know, you make decisions based sometimes on what you hope it will be, and you got to deal with the reality of what it actually becomes. So in this case, it became a bit of a shit show, but it was fun. <laughs> now, earlier on, you mentioned uh, Crush being like the first major label release for that band. Um, do you remember the first time you heard the song Shine and what your thoughts were? Yeah, I mean, the it, it sounded a little different than what they had been previously delving into. Um, their last EP before Crush was called When Up Turns to Down, and if you listen to that track, it's pretty heavy. It's almost like Alice in Chains, and Shine just seemed like this weird pop ditty that they just threw out there uh, on a lark, and, you know, I, I don't even think at, a, at the time anybody considered it actually making the record until... <laughs> Daniel Ray got a hold of it, and we were they were recording in a great old studio called Baby Monster in uh, uh, Lower Manhattan there, and he just wouldn't let the song go. Just loved the hook. Just said this is this is a single, and um, so subsequently it, it it made the album. And then when we played the album for the label, they pretty much unanimously said the same thing: we should lead with this. So we had a lot of debates whether we should, because as a band, we felt, well, that just sounds too much of a rush to sell out. Can't we introduce it, you know, second or third? Mm. But the, from the label's perspective, it was, man, let's just kick the door wide open. Like, make an impact as big as you can now. You've already got your cred from your indie releases and your years of touring. You've already got a fan base. So hopefully they'll stick by you because there's enough content on this record that the older fans are going to dig and this one track's just going to you know be a flashlight for the rest of the world to see you that may have never heard of you you know you know rise up from the underground basically was the attitude don't be shy so the band went out with it and it did well as a single and radio uh, reacted to it and the story of the band being you know wow is this the next canadian nirvana you know so at the end of the day, it was something I think was the right decision. Artistically, the band struggled for quite a bit over it. And, you know, it's like any band. They have that one song. They just go, oh, do we have to play this again? But your, your, <laughs> fans, your fans are paying to see that track, you know. And then we immediately saw the results. I think about a month after the Shine was released a single, we were playing a couple of shows with Pearl Jam. Oh, and, no yeah, we didn't know. We didn't even understand the impact of radio that much at that point. So I think it was the first gig was at a place called the Bob Gaetan Arena in Ottawa, and it held about 5,000 people. And then the next night we were at the Verdun Auditorium in Montreal that held about five or 6,000 people, maybe a little bit more. I can't remember. Well, all I know is when, as soon as the band hit the stage, it was like every – song off the new record the kids were immediately singing along to and just just seeing 5,000 kids like and the place was packed because it was just there was no other acts on the bill it was just the two of us so they were there early and they were just jumping up and down like a like a European or like a British audience was doing and it was like we all like I could I remember the band just like looking at you know they're playing looking at each other gobsmack going <laughs> we're in Canada this is awesome <laughs> so it, it, it you know the place went off the the uh, it just went phenomenal and of course when they played Shine the the place went went nuts so you know the band sort of walked off stage that night and went maybe radio's a good thing <laughs> let's get more of that
so when a band has like a big kind of breakthrough breakthrough kind of song or record like they did with Crush and Shine, um, what is it from a management's perspective when going into the next record? <laughs> the sophomore major label release is probably the hardest for any act to get out of their system because all of a sudden now everybody's a freaking expert <laughs> on what they think you need to do to maintain or follow up the previous record. And of course, an artist is always going to say, you know what? We did that. Let's do something different. The label's definitely afraid of that going, well, what if people don't like it? Um, so it is probably the hardest record to make for any band. So yeah, uh, turn me on was brutal. I'd have to say uh, at best, they basically recorded the record once with a, a producer named Ted Nicely, who had just done Girls Against Boys and some cool acts the band really liked. They really loved working with Ted. Uh, I liked the sound, but the label thought it was too flat, too dry. They said, go back and, and record some more songs. And as a huh. band, having the label say that, like we don't hear a single, go back at it when they've just spent uh, like a month in New Jersey recording <laughs> – you know, thinking like, you know, this, we just put our blood, sweat and tears in this. This is this is our art. And someone say your art's not good enough. I mean, no, of course. And a new label president come in from England who's um, now sort of didn't know much about the band at all. And it was tough. Um, so the band, after a lot of debate, went back to the drawing board and we went up to the studio in Moran Heights with Daniel Ray, who had produced uh, Crush and did a pile of more songs and the final product became kind of a mishmash of the two recording sessions and there were some artistic differences starting to happen within the band on whose songs should make the album and it ultimately pushed Jonathan out of the band because not a lot of his tracks were selected for the record as much as he wanted anyways and um it was also at the time when there was a big huge shift in the ownership uh and uh marketing of uh the label they were on which was a&m records which they're really damn proud to be part of if you know the history herb alpert and jerry moss started a&m records and uh it was one of the coolest independent labels for a while and before it became part of the Polygram group and then eventually Universal. And um, things were changing. We could sense it. And even talking to the marketing people, they just didn't seem to be into the first single as much. It wasn't a, sh wasn't a shine, even though it was sort of similar. I think it was uh, I Never Liked You, it was called. And um, we went on to do some touring, and um, but we had to replace a guitar player, and they brought in this fellow named Wiz from England who – uh, had a band called Mega City Four that they were great friends with and played uh, had toured a lot with in Europe. So Wiz moved to Canada and uh, toured with the band and and basically uh, you know the band did their best, but we just didn't feel the support from the states as much. Just there was a seismic shift, and I think it's only because of a new president who didn't feel vested into the uh, act because he didn't actually sign them, and uh, as much as the uh, all the people at A&M were great. Their A&R people were great. Their marketing people were great. But when you're not getting a directive from the top down to make the act a priority, it's tough. And then, um, I don't know, there was arguments. From, uh, you know, the, It was a struggle just to get the album cover approved. It was an, a, <laughs> The album cover alone was is a story where um, John 
was I don't know. He found a box of slides in the garbage outside. I think the recording <laughs> studio in New York or something, and he found this slide and then said, "I want to use this as the album cover." And it's a picture of a guy standing on a, uh, a New York plat a subway platform in a blue metal suit or something. And it was like, it's a weird picture. It's funny. I got it, but we couldn't get it uh, approved by legal with the label until we could find out they didn't want to get, you know, sued for using uh, um, this photo without permission. So we finally, I don't know how I had um, a couple of guys working for me at the management company who, uh, you know, really worked hard to, to, track this down and eventually through the smithsonian archives oh, wow. we found yeah we had to dig deep and and i think we paid a few bucks for somebody to the, anyway eventually we found the artist who had taken this photo for an art show it was out of hanging in a gallery for a while but then, i don't know anyway it was a long <laughs> story we finally found i think we got the photo credit or we got the smithsonian to sort of uh, take the we credited them perhaps I don't remember I have to look at the old credits in fact I don't even have a copy of that record so <laughs> anyway so it finally came out and I again it was like the label was kind of nonplussed about the album cover they were nonplussed about the the single choices and I think they thought we were fighting back and I think the band were fighting back really hard at this point because they knew internally they they felt that they weren't being taken seriously enough at the moment and uh, allowed to be who they uh, were before they had signed where they could do what they liked, but pretty much. So I, I like the record. It, it was a good record. It just unfortunately, um, I don't even think that the release dates lined up with the U.S. and Canada. So it was sort of staggered. It, just the timing, just a lot of things just sort of made that album uh, sort of come and go really quick. And then the band just didn't want to, you know, put out another record in, under those situation under that situation. So. You know, eventually uh, they broke up not long after um, they did a tour at the Offspring, I think, 97, 98, and that was it. So during this time as well, you're actually you're running a booking agency as well, and you're repping a lot of bands. And maybe take us through some of the bands that you were excited by and maybe um, were you surprised that all this was kind of coming together and all these bands were rising up at the same time, both kind of smaller acts and larger acts? So my secret to surviving as a manager – was having another gig that was cash flow. <laughs> so you can manage an act for a year, two, three, and not see a dime. And when you do see that dime, well, when you look at, at the thousands of hours you invested, it really doesn't uh, add up to much. So um, I had a booking agency going back to the mid-'80s, and um, yeah, I mean, in the early-'90s, all of a sudden – uh, especially after the, when the Doughboys had a lot of success, we were getting people would send us tapes of, of young bands and whatnot. And we were getting a lot of music from the East. And one day, Peter Rowan, who was managing a, a, an unknown band at the time called Sloan, sent me a, a demo. And when I heard Underwhelmed, I literally it was the first time I ever just shut the door in my office and went, Did I hear that right? <laughs> and I played it again, put on my head headphones and listened to it and went, holy shit, this is amazing. Uh, I called Peter back and I said, what's the plan with this band? What are you doing? Like, this is amazing. This is great. So 
we wound up repping the band for a few years as their booking agency. And once it got out that we were repping Sloan, then next thing you know, Peter goes, well, I got another band called Eric's Trip. It's like, oh, <laughs> send me that. It's like, holy shit, this is amazing. And then it was uh, Peter called me another time and said, I got another <laughs> band called Hardship Post. It was like, this is great. And then it just, you know, then we got jail and it just kept going and we were huh. repping pretty much i'd say the majority of that kind of band from the east coast and uh, it was really taking off and they were a lot of them were signing the sub pop so then sub pop would say oh we just signed another band you want to rep this act so we we were doing a lot of that and i was already known for doing some international acts um so i, I was getting well versed in how to bring acts over from europe and elsewhere and uh, uh then i had my stalwart uh, Canadian uh, punk legends that I'd been repping from DOA to SNFU um, to many others. And so it, it it was a great time because these acts uh, and the club scene were like all hitting their stride. Um, I mean, granted, there was a drop off when they banned smoking in the clubs. There was, you know, obviously – uh, ride programs were prevalent. So, uh, but you still weren't co competing then with the internet and streaming and, and all that yet. Um, so people were still going out and the club scene was, was pretty healthy for a while. And some of these acts were making the next step smelling to playing smaller theaters, smaller, you know, arenas. Um, and packaging was key. Then of course, all the big Lollapaloozas and, and whatnot were really putting the spotlight on all these acts that that's all I ever wanted to work with was acts that I liked. So yeah, sure. I was probably offered the bare naked ladies or I was, uh, offered this band or that band, you know, when, like a lot of people were, but I didn't hear it. it wasn't my thing. If I didn't hear a big guitar riff, I I, I just didn't really care for it because my background for myself was I came out of the 80s uh, uh, playing uh, drums in punk rock bands. I had a band called October Crisis that had toured with SNFU and all those bands and Daigle Abortions, all that fun stuff. So that was sort of in my DNA. Um, you know, I loved a great Aerosmith song as much as a Black Flag song. Uh, so when I got stuff that wasn't that i kind of either passed on it but i got known as the guy if it had a real edge to it sent it to me so anyway so yeah i mean the, the agency was a really great way to be an a and r source because you know most bands will send a booking agency their tape almost before they send it to anybody else because they want to get gigs and they need gigs before they can be seen by a label because i can't tell how many times i've been to a, a showcase it's like you know, you know the band's got potential, but like, why did you do this one after you've only played ten shows? You can still smell the basement on you guys. It's like, <laughs> go out and play a hundred shit-eating shows. Play in a ho play house parties. Play a uh, whatever loft party. Go out there and and just work out your chops. You know, in a, in a less critical environment, so you can grow organically and 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 get your chops uh, together. So. The agency for me was cash flow, and what that did, it allowed me to manage some of the acts who asked me to to do that. And so I was sort of doing this dual role for a while, running these two different companies because they do are they are entirely different functions. Yet, of course, there's a ton of crossover. So I got adept at both, and uh, I was lucky that I had some good success with some management clients, and we had. Uh, 
a good little boutique ag- agency that had, you know, um, some interesting acts. And that's what we, we – my motto was I don't care if you get on the radio. I just want to know that you're an act that the, the audience at the end of the night is going to, wow, I can't wait to see them again. You know, So hmm. that's why we would take on a Nashville pussy knowing that they're never going to get on radio with that name. <laughs> but they're a notorious name you'll never forget and, and, and used to put on a great sh- live show, still do. To this day, I, that's still our motto with with our agency. It's you know we're going to take a chance on a band that just has something different than just four white guys with guitars playing the latest whatever is as right now whatever you call it. I, I call the the alt pop rock that I'm hearing now with with so few like maybe they write a paragraph and they call it a song now there's no stories anymore there's no right. I don't know the urgency is a little bit lost yet every once in a while I'll go out and see uh, some underground stuff like I did last night there's a lot of bands that were really big in Canada in the 90s that did not make it out of this country like either in Europe or or the US or um, what do you think kind of prevented a lot of those bands from getting that that break outside of the outside of the borders Again, a lot of it's just luck and timing, and I, you know, sometimes believe that our Canadianness holds us back. There's a certain killer instinct that the American acts I find have over some of our acts. You know, um, I mean, that's not a bad thing per se, but I think that some acts don't translate as much perhaps like you know i love the rheostatics but there's an act well and to a certain extent uh, the, the hip the hip at times and had markets in america that they could do business in um but i, I remember one show in particular it was a place called toad's place in new haven connecticut and the doughboys got on the bill were playing with them at this university <laughs> and you know there was like 400 people there it was a great show uh it was a lot of fun but you know, at that time, the, the hip had already, I don't know how many gold records they already had at the time. And it was like, it was sort of like incredulous that um, it didn't feel like we were going to do that much less business if we just played our own there. So, <laughs> uh, yet I'm sure there were other markets that they did great in. Like any band, that you have you have pockets. It's hard to be consistent in every market um, and every country for a while. Like, you know, any band could go to Germany and draw an audience and then it just got overrun and uh, burned out the, the the live music scene and now it's very tough in Germany for some acts so with Canada and, and translating Canadian acts it's, it is just timing I mean there's a lot of Canadian acts doing really well in America um, so I think it goes both ways there's some acts that trend, don't translate into Can- in, in, in a Canadian market and or hmm. over overseas so I don't know I, I don't think there's anything inherently Canadian that makes it a, a bigger wall to get over, but you know it really just boils down to uh, making that connection with an audience. Um, in, in because it's an, music's an international language, so at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if they can even even understand the lyrics. Are they are they getting off on the music? You also manage a band called Scratching Post, which is one of my favorites of the era. Um, do you remember how you kind of hooked up with them and what you heard in them that made you want to work with them? So, as I mentioned earlier, this fellow Peter Rowan, who had started mm-hmm. bringing me acts from the East Coast, wanted to move to Toronto, and um, and he was managing, I can't remember who at the time, and basically I said, well, why don't you come, you know, work for me? So Peter came and, and worked for my management company, and Scratching Poets was one of the acts he kept championing. I knew a bit about them, being they they were from London, uh, from London, and I spent. Uh, 
10 years in the 80s in London. And uh, it was my incubator for my business and musical uh, whatever aesthetic that I developed um, because it was a really creative t- small town where acts could just be as weird and eccentric as they want because they didn't care about making money. They just wanted to do art almost. And uh, it was cheap to live. And there was a good little community. So, you know, first of all, Scratching Post had a little bit of a leg up with uh, uh, us because we were now in Toronto, my offices, and uh, we liked them. And then they just, you know, Nicole was a dynamo. She had a great presence as a singer, guitar player, um, front person. And uh, so Peter said, let's manage this, or he was managing it uh, for our management company. And I basically uh, assisted and then helped close the deal with a label called The Enclave, which uh, I think six months after we signed them w- went out of business. And we had we had a, um, an insolvency clause in their contract, meaning if the label went bust, they got to keep all the money and get their masters back. And that's exactly <laughs> what happened. So they got a bit of a windfall, but it, it set them back with the release and, and, and whatnot. But we had some acts that were coming from trusted sources um you know i think it's canada's a funny little uh music community where you know it's now quite a large music industry but but it's still a small industry if you're you know dealing with metal or you know fringe music say alternative music so we had some great a and r sources a fellow named frank wipert in vancouver who i'd been dealing with forever at the time was managing pure conline crush matthew good bob's your uncle he uh was finding all these great west coast bands and we'd send them our east coast bands and so there was a great network of people that were championing certain bands and you know the ones you decided to manage were it was a kind of a two-way street you you know i had to trust the band as much as they they were going to trust us to take care of their careers and guide them and i had to know that they were going to be amenable to some of our sage advice i'd like to say <laughs> and our experience and i wanted to make sure that these uh, acts weren't in it for basically i had to know that these acts were willing to ro- work really hard and they were not in it just for I don't know what some people think oh, I'm going to form a band it'll be all glamorous well it isn't and um, I wanted to know they couldn't really do anything else they could barely tie their shoes but their raison d'etre was to make music make people dance make people sweat and um, so that's that was our criteria we had to find bands that really you know had something that really connected with people and um, we liked and Scratching Post had some great catchy riffs. I think at the time people were thinking they could be the next Veruca Salt or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, no, they they were just they were a great act. But you know, in the '90s there was a lot of major labels willing to snap up uh, this type of music because they were you know it was the gold rush for a while when labels had you know the industry was healthy, the music industry was healthy by and large, and physical sales were huge profit for the labels um that's why they were so afraid of uh you know digital sales and downloads but uh and fought it so ferociously in the in the end of the 90s um but they were a good act and um to be honest uh i'm still in touch with uh, with uh, nicole a bit um she works with my sister and <laughs> you know uh, it was a uh, there were 
you know, other bands out there to this day where I, I really have a hard time listening to them because I know it was we poured our blood, sweat, and tears into it, and it just didn't pan out. approach a band like Scratching Post, what was your pitch as a manager back then? Like, what were you, how did you sell yourself as to, I'm the guy to trust? One day I got a call from a dear old friend uh, named Nadine Jelno, who was working for BMG Records at the time, and she started off at a radio station, the University of Ottawa station, I think it was, and um, she was just a great 
booster of, of, of great acts. So she called me one day and she said, hey, Cuckoo. That was her whole thing. She called me Cuckoo. I want you to manage this band we're, we're going to sign. I said, oh, yeah. She says, yeah, will you meet with them? I said, well, who else are they meeting with? And she named a few other managers. I said, well, i got to come to Toronto next week. Okay, set it up. So I met with the act, and, and this was the first time I had really been interviewed as a manager, and I knew that there was other more established managers in the mix they were talking to. And um, the act hadn't actually signed yet to BMG. They were looking at Warner and a few other majors, but we just we hit it off. I think we got – we went bowling and got very drunk. And um, <laughs> the next morning, I think I had a voicemail saying, okay, you're our guy. And huh. that was it. And then I, pa- I packed up and moved to uh, Toronto and, uh, to, to manage them to be closer to the label because it was based out of Toronto. And then I took on uh, another act. What band was that that you were? Oh, that was a band. They were called Why the Sky at the time. And then they, uh, we had a huge sort of marketing crisis with the major label people who thought that why this guy wasn't marketable, come up with something else. Also, they wound up changing their name to Mrs. Torrance uh, from the uh, Shining character. So they became Mrs. Torrance, uh, but that, that that's a major label fiasco. They went through three different presidents before their first record even came out. Two huh. different A&R people. It, was, it just got shelved and pushed off, and the, the, the label president and the A&R guy at the time, we said to them, you're not because we knew there was rumors they may be uh, being recruited out of the Toronto office to New York, and they said, "No, no, we're here. We'll, we'll see your record through." A few months later, yeah, guys, uh, we, had, we took the job in New York, and uh, <laughs> the label president and A and R guy who signed the act, we signed them. They were the ones directing the rest of the company to do what needed to be done to break a brand new uh, unknown act. Uh, they were all of a sudden gone, and uh, the people that filled in their the void just didn't have that attachment to the act. So it was a struggle to get their record out. And that was poor guys. Uh, you know, I've never seen a, a, just such an unfair situation for an act, you know, through no fault of their own. They were just trying to be who they were um, and just got chewed up and spit out by the major label machinery that can sometime uh, resemble spinal tap and a really – in a very real way. <laughs> and what were some of the other challenges of kind of navigating those kind of waters? You mentioned like a gold rush. They were signing a lot of acts really quickly. They had a lot of money to throw at acts. There was at least a chance of getting two or three labels interested in almost any act that could put two chords together huh. uh, back then, it seemed. And there was a young, hungry a and R set eager in Canada to prove themselves because finally the eighties were over. The labels in Toronto were now allowed to spend money on, on local talent and develop it. Uh, whereas before it was like all their job was just to put out whatever the U S label signed. I don't know if it's coming of age of the music industry in Canada, the, the right turn of phrase or what did yes. you see? Yeah. Can you maybe describe what kind of led to that? And a couple things. I think there was an example in Quebec that, they had a star system in place. There were, were uh, you know, acts that could sell 100,000 records or more in, in Quebec and, and sell only 100 in Ontario. So the acts that were coming over the border from the states with, you know, all of a sudden they have tour buses, buses, they're on MTV, much music. 
you know, the labels were seeing payoff. There was a really good network of uh, radio. You know, there wasn't a million different TV channels or music channels. And so much really had a lot of power. They could break an act. Um, if they liked that video and you got in heavy rotation, you could be damn sure you were going to get some traction. So there were a few unique opportunities for the time that weren't present in the 80s and, and are now not even around as much anymore, even though obviously you can anybody can get a video up for a fraction of the price and, and get it out there. And if they're good at social media, could probably get a, you know, 10,000 likes. Can they get it to a hundred thousand? Can they get it to a million? Can they get it to 10 million? I don't know. But I think that the Canadian labels were starting to be profitable and, and, and allowed to have their unit be profitable. And I think Canadian Music, because of some Canadian acts that had broken all the ladies, Shania, uh, uh, Celine, and uh, Alanis, and, 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 and you name it. So when a new signing from Canada was presented to the subsidiary label uh, of that major in the UK and Germany and, and Australia and France and Italy and, 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 and US, they were getting the international marketing team were now starting to pay attention. And um, some of our acts started doing well internationally. So there were some direct tangible results rather than, oh, that's another nice band from Canada. Uh, and, oh, isn't Canada only known for Rush and, you know, uh, uh, the Guess Who, Neil Young? So I think that the 90s was a very different time where there was a lot of things that all sort of fell into place. From now marketing, a big uptick in marketing spends, big uptick in Canadian uh, uh, media outlets wanting more CanCon. And I, I don't even get me going about whether CanCon and, and the rules uh, helped or, or not, but I can say that some of these acts legitimately broke without all those radio CanCon rules and whatnot because they were good, because they now had – Support and there were, um, you know, our agents, our managers were, were more respected globally, even though there were some happening in other eras. And I don't mean to dismiss managers and agents from the 60s, 70s, whatever. They had their acts, you know, Brian Adams or whatever. But at the end of the day, the 90s was a flood of money and a young, hungry group of AR guys in Canada eager to prove themselves um, and it, it paid off until it all came crashing down at the end of the 90s as you've pointed out the mid 90s was in that stat you told me a while ago about how many gold records uh, there were in the mid 90s compared to the end of the 90s uh, certified Canadian acts um, certified gold acts so um, you know by the end of the 90s uh, the allure the, uh, of much much a change into a reality show station and Napster came about and um, people just were staying in a little bit more and Y2K I don't know what happened but it basically <laughs> dried up and some of the on all the consolidation of the labels I think at the beginning of the 90s, there may have been eight major labels. By the end of the 90s, we were down to like five. And now what are there, three? So it's it was consolidation that crushed like what happens in every profitable artistic uh, venture. 
Eventually, the accountants take over, and then they go public, and then they've got to answer to shareholders. And next thing you know, the mantra from high and above is make money, not develop art. Mm. Once you know, and well, I've always said I'm in the most ridiculous business because you know commerce and art are two polar opposite ideas for a true artist. So, you know, the landscape and the world is littered with artists that didn't make a dime while they were alive, from painters to whatever, and musicians that, you know, are highly underappreciated in the time. Iggy Pop used to release records and sell 20,000 copies, and now revered as one of the, the godfathers of the whole music scene. So, you know... Uh, it's funny how we we in North America more than anywhere else underappreciate our arts, um, and the Americans are, you know, you tell any band, I'm going to go go off topic for just a minute here, but in the late '90s I was co-managing a band called the Helicopters from Sweden who were making a big buzz in Europe, treated like rock gods over there, could play all the big festivals and you know and the clubs they were playing would treat you know roll out the red carpet, treated them with respect and whatnot. We'd have them come over and do like a three-week tour in the U.S. and they go, "Wow, yeah, that wasn't fun," you know, begging for twelve beers and a hot dog <laughs> uh, for your hospitality, and then playing clubs that were substandard, where you're doing the fucking bar owner a favor by playing his club and helping him sell beer. So, you know, until you get to a certain level, you're really eating shit in North America. Whereas I think artists at any level, just there's a higher regard. For the artist, you know, they don't look at uh, the arts as a oh, you're you're a social dropout, you're a cop out, you know, you're you're lazy, go get a real job, you know. Whereas in North America, we have a whole different attitude towards it. But eh, you know, Canadians are open-minded, I think, to the arts more than the American school system is and whatnot. But anyway, that's another whole political discussion. <laughs> You mentioned the um, the star system in Quebec a little while ago. Can you maybe um, compare and contrast that with the one in the um, rest of Canada and what kind of um, notes they took from it? Um, yeah, I don't know if anybody can directly say that it was mirrored, the, the Quebec star mm -hmm. system, but I think that anybody ever spent time and any of the label reps that were – you know, from, say, Ontario that went and worked in the Quebec office for a while or a Quebec office guy got promoted to work in Toronto, they would bring these stories about how, you know, Jean Leloup can play in front of 40,000 people, but he's lucky to do 40 at the horseshoe. Um, and then people would say, well, how is that so? Well, A, he was singing in French, so the French language was <laughs> their calling <laughs> card. But they have far more magazines and talk shows uh and the the attitude in quebec is much like the french uh of france where arts is not a dirty word so they would seriously give the these people airtime they would get full stories and and written up in mainstream papers and they were treated like they were as newsworthy as anybody else out there whereas English Canada wasn't doing that so much, and you, everything was still very fringe. Um, you know, sure, the Global Mail once in a while might have done a story on Jan Arden, and it was great. Yay! But, you know, <laughs> but you had – thank God there was Ed and Nada doing their best to, like, you know, put 
Sloan on the front cover and, and introduce them to people before they, anybody else really knew them or, or whoever. And um, exclaim and and chart. Sorry, yeah, so I meant chart is Ed and Nada and then exclaim. And and college radio was it was important uh, then, I think. Um, so I think that once Canadian stations started spinning Sloan and Eric's trip and the Doughboys and they were reaching number one on their charts, hey, labels, young label people were taking note, the interns, whatever, that were bringing it to their bosses saying, look, this act is charting in Canada. We should check it out. So it was before you could just go on Facebook and see how many likes they have or, or how many streams they have on Spotify. The Canadian system just had – when you had a good – publicity team and you had a good story and you had a single happening and a video happening and then tour if the timing was all lined up you had a chance of breaking through the noise and being noticed now i don't see that happening as easily you can get your single you can get your video you can get the album and you're still competing with so many new variables that didn't exist in the 90s i remember you know, I started managing Ashley post his 90s fame, and our job was to sort of reinvent him in the early 2000s. And Actually, speaking of uh, Ashley McIsaac, um, were you surprised that he was able to kind of break through, become mainstream in the, in the 90s with, with uh, you know, this kind of Celtic vibe and more rootsy kind of thing and, you know, all kind of making much music? Were you surprised that a band like – or a person like Ashley McIsaac could – kind of transcend the, the moist and the eye mother earth and kind of go be equal, go toe to toe with those guys. Yeah. To be honest, I was very surprised, but I do hand it to Alan Reed who had the foresight to see something, saw a diamond in the rough. I think he was out at East coast music awards or something. He saw Ashley perform and just went, wow, this guy is on fire and he's doing something. Nobody else is really doing. He's the Jimi Hendrix, a fiddle. And, <laughs> and you know, uh, A&M records at the time was very creative. They had signed Jan Arden, then the Doughboys, then Asher McIsaac. All three acts did very well. All three acts were cheerleaded by, uh, um, Alan and uh, a fellow named Dave Porter and they had a good marketing team. And there was, there was just, they were just, it was timing and the fact that there was nobody else like him. You feel, any good business doesn't go after what's already out there. They try and fill a void. And yes, you say there was Great Big C and there was the Thomas Trio and the Red Albino. There was a bunch of those acts. But Ashley was a solo artist hmm. doing this um, and taking traditional music and turning it on its head. And I, I, I you know, I'll, to this day, I say that this guy is. Like, I don't like fiddle music. I'll be honest. Uh, when I started managing it, I thought, what am I doing? But when I saw him live, I was like, wow, he's, he's the Sex Pistols of, of fiddle. He's Jimi Hendrix. He, he, like, just blew me away with his intensity and his, his skill. I mean, this guy was going so fast you couldn't see his fingers. You just saw smoke coming. You thought his fiddle literally every show was going to catch on fire. I and mean, some of my favorite <laughs> shots of him was when the lights are behind him and, and the, um, the chalk that he uses to, to the rosin to keep the strings from drying out, uh, you know, and then when the his bow would made a horsehair would fray or whatever synthetic or, or horsehair I don't know that it would fray and it was just like uh, just a, it, you just couldn't believe it was coming from him. So that's an instance of an artist that every time he played, I never heard anybody say, "Wow, that yeah, was yeah." been there done that don't need to see that again it was always <laughs> like holy shit that was an epiphany and <laughs> the fact that the guy could 
tell a yarn like nobody's business. So personable to boot, a dynamic player, and just stuff that your ears, even if you knew Celtic music, you didn't know what he, what he was doing. So he turned us on its head. But when he broke through, I was I, I wasn't surprised, but I didn't think it become the phenomena it would. <laughs> in the 90s that I hope to actually get on the podcast at some point is a band called Made. Can you maybe uh, describe the story of how they kind of got signed? And <laughs> um, All right. So Made, well, first of all, it was my sister on drums. <laughs> right. um, so there was that connection. Um, so this very funny fellow who was very generous with his credit card, um, Brian Heatherman, was A&R for a label called MCA records and Brian um, loved the band and would come to shows and got to know them and hang out. He found the lead singer, Jason Taylor, just hilarious. They, those two together were just so funny. They had this really dry, sarcastic humor to them and it was infectious. So there was a real spark about them. And at the time it was like, well, are they ready to be signed? Do they need to go out there and uh, play a hundred and, 50 shows. Yeah, they did. But the thing was, Brian at the time, it was it was timing. I think that he was looking. He hadn't signed something for a while, I, I don't think. 
I think MCA had a little bit of money left in the coffers. I think they knew they were about to be merged into Universal Records. So anyway, there was some nice timing going on here. And Maid had written some some really interesting kind of – we couldn't figure out what they were. Were they going to be Canada's Weezer? Were they Slacker Rock, part of that thing? You know, Because it wasn't, it wasn't Shoegazer, but it certainly wasn't, say, Doughboy's energy level. So we had them go – into a studio where um, in downtown Toronto on Spadina that was owned by a fellow named Tom Tremuth who had this label called Hypnotic Records who I just signed a Voivod to and they produced a Voivod record and did a hell of a job with it with these two producers uh, that were like the house guys for his Hypnotic Recording Studios. So we said, okay, the studio was free for three, four weeks. It's like, let's see what you do with Made. So Made were let loose without really – having a the clock it was sort of like just go in whenever it fe- you feel like it if it took a day to get drum sounds it took a day whatever they got to use some of voivod's gear and that was still left there and so the sounds were already set but this was so not uh you know they were not a hard rock act so here they are in an environment allowed to be creative and not worried about money and they, they came out with a really interesting record and when um which we basically called demos but they were shaped into the record so Brian got us uh, a meet with uh, Randy Lennox, who was the fairly new president of of MCA at the time. Ross Reynolds, I think, had just retired. So Randy heard it and really liked it, and we sort of tag-teamed him. uh, Peter Rowan, who was working with me at the time as a manager, uh, he was directly responsible for what we talked about earlier, Scratching Post and a few others. Actually, another post band, Hardship Post. Anyway, so we had the post bands. Anyway, um, so – Peter and I tag team Randy in a conference room, and we just really laid out a solid plan financially and uh, creatively what we were going to do once and if they signed us and gave us the money we asked for. Little did we know at the time the money we were asking for was going to be like one of the biggest advances they'd ever given any artist. And I remember uh, leaving the meeting, and I, maybe we went for drinks with, with the inner fellow afterwards and i think he said you guys are nuts like you know we're not giving is you know i i understand why you went you shot for the moon but he's not going to give you the moon well literally i think the next day we got um sort of a, i can't remember it was a call or an email that said can you just explain uh, something out we just lay something out a little bit more i was like sure and then head of business affairs calls the next day and said here's our our, our offer And it was pretty much everything we asked for. And, you know, I told the band about it and I said, don't, don't get crazy about this. But, you know, after you buy a van, buy gear, pay um, some, uh, like most bands, uh, they accumulate debt over the years of playing $50 gigs and whatnot. So I said, it's not going to set you up for life, but it certainly takes the pressure off for the next couple of years. You can live off the balance and uh, um, just be free to be creative and be available to tour all the time, and you can quit your day jobs. So um, it was a really nice story in that respect um, that it p- panned out, and the U.S. label basically took ownership of the act. We They then flew us down to meet the president of the U.S. label and who had signed REM and uh, was a really nice Australian fellow who had just moved from Australia to run MCA uh, LA office, um, and he loved the band too. So we we really had some timing that worked in our favor, 
the fact that you know the labels were a little flush for a while. So uh, yeah, it was a great story for them. Uh, you know, and the band went out and did some really interesting tours after that. Um, but like all bands, it was uh, just the second sophomore record. There was it was just too much pressure to do this, do that, and then the label became universal and everything got merged and amalgamated and people got let go and you know so it just all like a lot of acts it just they fizzle out not by any fault sometimes of their own it's just circumstance they just can't maintain the business and or didn't find their foothold and life circumstances change but anyway i'm I'm rambling so you can edit
So when you look back at your time in the 90s managing and booking and being around and within the music industry, what do you think? Is there is there a legacy of, of the 90s in Canada and kind of the music that was created during that time? Is there something that, you know, people look back on and say, yeah, it started there. It started in the 90s. I'm trying to think. I mean, certainly the farther our acts went outside our borders and, and, and became – uh, household names in, in, in the rest of the world um, certainly helped and we've always had a good reputation of you know our of good players good musicians um, earnest songwriters from country artists to the pop artists to the alt to the metal I mean my experience in the 90s uh, with Voivod for a while was you know one of where they went at the beginning of the 90s being you know revered touring with Soundgarden of Faith No More to being like, oh, well, you know, metal's not cool. Grunge is the thing, you know. Why can't you sound like Alice in Chains and, and, and so on and so forth? And um, I think that what I noticed is a lot of our acts are perseverant and they just they just put their head down and just keep doing what they do and they break through. And I think, you know, there were bands like No Means No and other acts that survived the 80s and kept touring hard in the 90s and just – kept blowing audiences away so that it, it you know we've we always had i think a good rep as as putting out quality music it just wasn't quantity in, in the 90s it's just it was just nice to see acts being accepted like oh automatically you're from canada you're going to be good i'll give you one other story where i remember a, a south by southwest early 90s um we had shadowy man on a shadowy planet um, asked to play the Canadian showcase, and I said no. Well, I want him to play just a regular showcase, you know, like an international showcase with any other artists. And so this sort of became a bit of a story for a while. And the long and short of it is, in the end, anyway, we had them out touring with Dead Milkmen, and they played a show. And Kids and All had just been maybe a year on on uh, american television so a lot of people knew the theme and people exploded and i remember seeing you know at the show when they played the kids in hall theme all of a sudden it's national pride in me and and all these people going <laughs> yeah canada you know in some i can't remember it was emos or where it was in austin at south by and it was just like it was something to be you know i was it was the first time i went wow Canada rocks, you know. So I have, I've, you know, seeing the uh, the Doughboys at some of the first European festivals, and and seeing how that went over Voivod, it was just like, yeah, there's people there because they're they bring out Canadians go support Canadians too. I find so when you play in England, every Canadian that <laughs> is there working, going to school is coming out to support the act, which is really really nice. So I, I think that we have this this sort of pride, but it isn't brash. But when we do, as I remember that Canadian commercial, I am Canadian, which caused all these ruffles. And, you know, in a sense, it, 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 you know, some of the artists that saw the success of acts they liked and, and used that as a springboard to like, wow, we can get bigger than just being superstars in Hamilton and Calgary or, you know, wherever. So I, I think that what I think the 90s did for a lot of the acts that are out there now it was set up a really nice foundation not to take away from what acts in the 60s and 70s and 80s did but certainly the the acts and the amount of money being put into canadian acts showed that people had confidence that there was some really uh, quality content coming out of canada um 
that was a story worth telling and, and, and music worth hearing. So that's what I hope your story one day realizes, you know. Is there anything else that we didn't touch on that maybe you thought that uh, might come up today in this chat? Um, a lot of people, you know, is it too soon to talk about the nineties? Hell no. Is it, you know, <laughs> it's, is it, is there, is this being overly nostalgic and are you backwards thinking? Uh, no, I mean, you learn from the past and I think that there are some acts that really literally did get completely overlooked because they were Canadian. You, you asked that question earlier because they were just didn't have the fight and just wanted to make art and didn't give a fuck about the commerce. What are some examples you're at when you, when you think of that? Uh, you know, look at my whole fucking roster. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of acts on there that I thought were going to rule, and uh, for whatever reason, they were content to do this or that, and uh, just uh, you know, they went back to their day jobs. And but anyway, the long and short of it is, when we like anything, just because you pick up a hockey stick doesn't mean you're going to make money from it. Just because you write a song doesn't mean you're going to make any money from it. It's it's, it's a lot of luck, timing, perseverance, and just dedication. Um, like a, You have to have an insanely singular drive. You really have to be – you've got to – there is no shortcut. Some of the stuff we've talked about, that the 90s, oh, it was easy to get a record deal. No, you still had to be damn good. You still had to, to really – want it and you had to have the goods to back it up and a good team and and all that and just be patient and learn and you know a lot of bands just again you're so on the moment you forget to listen you forget to sort of take a minute before you react and uh, you need to sort of i think that's one thing i will say about canadians we will take a we'll take a pause and we'll try and give a measured response i think you and i had many conversations where it's like what is the quintessential 90s Canadian artists really fucking up. Like, who went out there and who, <laughs> who was that? Wow, didn't know that story. That's really sad that they blew $300,000 on hookers and blow or whatever it is. We didn't have a Kurt Cobain. The Americans just seem to be far more dramatic, and that, yes. that creates more headlines and they get more eyeballs on that than, you know, we, we, American Canadians don't jump up and down and make a lot of noise as much as the Americans do and, and just get all funny. And, you know, many times, and I'll refer back to Mr. McIsaac, love him, but at the same time, you know, it's like, what made him popular? His notoriety now more than his, and that notoriety, everybody thinks they know because he, he said some things or he did some things that seemed outrageous for a Canadian. But I can tell you, he did, if he did those things in America, it'd be oh well, great. You get you get celebrated for that kind of stuff. Whereas in Canada, and because he was from the East Coast, where every, everybody's very precious about their 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 Ashley and their Celtic music, you just don't behave that way. That's just un, un <laughs> on East Coast, un Canadian. Well, you know, in America, they, they they pay millions of dollars to go do that shit. Look at fucking Kanye. <laughs> so all I can say is sometimes our own prudishness, our own centuries of trying to get out of the imprint we have from the uptight Scots and Brits who populated this land and stole it or whatever. Oh, wait, I'm going way off topic, but you know what I mean? It's like <laughs> we, ha we still have this puritanical look at times, whereas Americans sort of bulldoze everything and may the most brash person win. You know, we just – I don't want Canadians to all of a sudden adopt and, uh, and, and change and, and, and try and be brash uh, 
for the sake of being brash. They, it's certain personalities just will get written about. That's just how it happens in any, you know, you go to a party, there's always a, a great storyteller and then the wallflowers who may have just as good as stories, but they don't need to have a public forum for that. So I think our Canadian industry, our Canadian artists have kind of been more of the stand back in that party and watch everybody else and sort of observe and then pick their moments. Whereas um, the Americans are just like, go, go, go all the time and uh, try and be the loudest person in the room. I think the 90s allowed some of our Canadian acts to get a little bit more loud because we finally had some more money behind us. So a Canadian video budget was twenty to $50,000, and that was a large amount for a Canadian video, where in America it was like $100,000 was a minimum for an indie band video back – not indie, but a, a signed to – a freshly signed to a major or whatnot. So it's economies of scale too, right? You know, you, mm-hmm. you got a, you know, you got 300 million people versus 30 million. So the labels just had much more money to spend in America. And the Holy grail for a Canadian act was to get a U.S. deal, but it didn't always pay off because you signed to the U.S. label, you pissed off the Canadian label who didn't have ownership in you. So, and I had an act that I managed for many years that were signed directly to the U.S. label and the Canadian label, I could barely get a meeting. They, oh yeah, right, right. We distribute. No, we're on your fucking label. We're Canadian. Like, can you help out? You know. So it is a struggle at times. Uh, a final question here. Um, now I have a playlist on uh, Apple and Spotify made up of '90s music, Canadian '90s music. Um, can you give me three songs from maybe the bands you either repped or managed from the '90s that you think uh, deserve to be in that playlist? Oh, great. Well, Made would be uh, Hair Down. That was their that was their pop ditty. They didn't even want on the record, but the really? label the label fought and said, "Let's do it," and it did give them some traction and gave them a bit of a leg up. But we we got them on um, that Rob Thomas tour because of that single. Um, anyway, Voivod the Prow. I mean, off of uh, I think one of their most underrated records, which I love to death, called Angel Rat. Cool. Uh, um, and the Doughboys, um, the last thing they did before signing to A and M. We did this uh, – it was sort of a contractual obligation, so we did this EP, and there was only a couple new songs on it. And then they did a hilarious cover of a, a B-52 song called My Own Private Idaho, but um, the song went up, turns to down. So we'll go with Maid, Voivod, and Doughboys. Sure. All right. That sounds Excellent. good. Excellent. Uh, well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me about your experience in the 90s today, man. Oh, no hey. Get me going about – wait till you get me going on the 80s and the 2000s. Thank you so much for joining us today on Raven's Rule. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, you can do so in a variety of ways. First, you can go to patreon.com slash become a patron, get access to deleted audio, get advanced notice of the guests, and get a chance to submit questions to those guests for an exclusive Patreon Q&A. Visit redbubble.com, search Raven's Rule, and you can buy various goods with the Raven's Rule podcast logo on it. Follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to this. And if you listen to this on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more 90s Can Rock content, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. And lastly, if you're looking for music, we have an official playlist on Apple and Spotify. Currently, it's curated by myself with tracks that I've selected, but as you heard during today's episode, eventually, it'll be curated by the guests themselves. Until next time, friends, take care.